My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Baldur Hagaritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the Republican Party in the United States through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the Republican Party? Hello, Dario. Good to be here again. And, well, we're now at a stage that we can safely say that a candidate who didn't actually participate in the Republican primaries has won, Donald Trump. He's going to run for president against uh, Joe Biden. And that in itself is a fascinating phenomenon, right? Someone who didn't participate in the debate, someone who stayed out of the whole um, supposed political interaction that uh, primaries are made for, uh, still easily wins. And not just, you know, with a small margin, but with an enormously convincing margin. That is fascinating to observe. But on top of that, uh, the nature of the Republican primaries and the result of Donald Trump winning are a very good case study of the, if you like, decay of the West that we so often discuss on this podcast. In many ways, the Republican primaries are an extreme microcosm of all the things that you can observe, even in Europe and other Western countries, and not just in the Republican Party of the United States. And what are the facts? The Republican Party also known as the GOP, the Grand Old Party, is one of the two major contemporary political parties in the United States. It emerged as the main political rival of the Democratic Party in the mid-1850s. The party was founded in 1854 by anti-slavery activists who opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, an act which allowed for the potential expansion of slavery into the western territories of Kansas and Nebraska. With the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican president, the deep southern states seceded from the United States. Under the leadership of Lincoln and the Republican Congress, the Republican Party led the fight to defeat the Confederate States in the American Civil War, preserving the Union and abolishing slavery. Afterward, the party largely dominated the national political scene until the Great Depression in the 1930s, when Republicans lost their congressional majorities and their Democrat Social New Deal programs proved popular. Presidential primaries and caucuses are being organized to select delegates to the 2024 Republican National Convention to determine the party's nominee for the president in the 2024 United States presidential elections. The Republican primaries and caucuses have taken place or will take place in all 50 states. What is the bubble? Before we begin with the like real bubble conversation that we usually have, I think it's very important uh, for us to state at the beginning that um, when we're criticizing the Republican Party, that's not us bashing the right or ranting against the right. We're, both of us are I mean, political people in the sense that we talk and care about politics, but neither of us have a great party affiliation. Uh, I've voted left, right, center, up and down. I've voted everywhere. Um, there, I, I don't have a particular distaste for the Republican Party in that sense. Um, I just 
there's things to criticize about the Republican Party from a Western Balo perspective, and that's very important to me today. Yes, exactly. There is a tendency, especially nowadays, that our inherent psychological tribalism demands for us to take sides, right? So the moment you hear someone rant or say something negative about a specific policy from a political party, then automatically the conclusion is that that person is on in the other tribe, is on the other side. So in this episode, we're going to be very critically looking at these Republican primaries. We're probably not even going to mention the Democratic Party, except for this short segment. And so then listeners might think, oh, so they are in favor of Biden or they are praising the Democratic Party. That is not at all the case. Um, We do not have a political affiliation whatsoever. We are just today talking about the Republican Party and what's concerning about the primary process. And there is a case to have a specific episode dedicated to the Democratic Party as well in the future. Particularly when we're talking about the Democratic establishment, right? So Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and the impact that they've had on the world from a Western bubble perspective by waging wars, right? That's something that the Democratic Party definitely has a lot of space to to organize. And also their inability to deal with someone like Donald Trump, for example, right? So they're in their basically inability to connect to the millions and millions of Americans who vote for someone like Donald Trump. And that says a lot about the Democratic Party and their um, bubble thinking, if you like, their inherent tribalism. And that's certainly not a tribalism that you or I share. And that's the uh, this podcast is not about at all. Not at all. Um, so let's start with the conversation about the Republican Party itself. Um, and the party is experiencing a trend that the West as a whole is experiencing. So we're seeing a gradual shift towards more right-leaning policies. And at the same time, and this is something we've uh, discussed in in previous episodes, right, we're seeing a bit of a shift towards more radicalism or more extremism in that sense, where um, just certain norms, common decency, no longer plays such an existential, existential role in Western politics nowadays. Yes, and maybe there it's not even so much about right versus left, right? It's just that the tr- what used to be traditional rights, traditional conservatism, is something that doesn't really exist nowadays anymore. So in many ways, you notice that, for example, the populist left and the populist right find each other in certain areas. So that linear division of right and left no longer is there. But what you see is that Generally, in the West, politics is changing, the tone of politics is changing, the pressure points are changing, the way you connect to voters is changing, and the Republican primaries are a very extreme example of that. And most of the world, of the Western world, is not quite where the Republican primaries are, because they are focused on the, the sort of the hardcore membership of the Republican Party, and that's not uh, indicative of the rest of the world, but you can see a shift that the rest of the world is going in a similar direction. And that's why this is particularly relevant for us. And this is the reason why we're not so much talking about the populist aspects of all of this, because that's something we did right before the winter break. Uh, In in December, we talked about right-wing populism. Um, But this is also because the presidential elections in the United States are coming up uh, in November. This is a very important 
topic to deal with. And the Republican Party is just a really good case study of this overall. I think I think we can call it a, de- a decline. It's a decline because it, it comes out of a place of fear and even anger, right? The, 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 if you listen to the debates of the Republican uh, primaries, but also if you just listen to your average Republican voter, it is a much more aggressive, much more fearful, and much more, if you like, um, us versus them narrative, insider-outsider, we have to protect us ourselves against the evildoers kind of narrative, than if you had interviewed Republican voters 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And that is something that to a certain extent can be seen everywhere. Europe is not as fearful of the future as the United States, but it's definitely more fearful than it used to be. And so, as always, the United States seems to basically be the front runner, the vanguard of these Western dynamics. And maybe the Republican Party is the extreme vanguard. Then the rest of the United States follows, and then the rest of Europe and the rest of the Western world follow that. So it wouldn't be surprising if 30, 40 years from now, the rhetoric that you see in the Republican primaries today will be echoed by political parties in Europe and elsewhere. The element of fear is particularly interesting uh, to me when we when we're talking about this, right? Because if you look at uh, the Republican primaries now, um, I had the pleasure of watching all debates. Um, it was, right, because for me it's entertainment and I, I no longer watch it for politics. Uh, this is my keeping up with the Kardashians. I'm keeping up with uh, US politics in that sense. Um, and if you if you look at the the general themes that were discussed, right? So there was a big focus on the migration uh, situation at the southern border, right? The invasion from the southern border. There was a lot of focus on American identity and what what does it mean to be an American and why why is this being taken away from us from by others? There was a big big focus on China and right the fear of basically rising China, and then the last part was fixing Biden's economy, uh, right? So being very worried about what, what what's Biden doing to the country now, right? So all these four big topics are fundamentally connected to fear. There is a large fear within, I, I would say, the United States. And it's not at all comparable to, I mean, usually we say 20, 30 years ago in the 1990s, but I would even say that during my brief time in the United States, right, I spent 10 months in the United States studying there, and this was in 2015, that, that wasn't at all the case, right? There, there was still this notion of the United States being the most powerful country in the world and being the almighty and not being scared of anything. Yes, if you think of yourself as the leader of global affairs, leader of global politics, then the questions you ask yourself is how can we lead and how can we use that maybe to our own advantage? Our incredibly powerful position, what does that mean for our own interest and our own agenda? That is the kind of tone that you certainly would have seen in the 1990s. And maybe even, you're right, maybe even 10 years ago. But certainly read the way that American politicians on the Republican as well as the Democratic side talked about the rest of the world, the outsider, the other. It was about the United States leading the other, influencing the other, shaping the other in the American image. That was what it was about. And this list that you just mentioned now, it's still about the other, but it has nothing to do with leading China or leading immigration or leading um, uh, uh, global politics. It is about 
protecting against the other. It is being scared of the others, being afraid of immigration, afraid of China, afraid of uh, even the Democrats and, you know, how Biden has some kind of evil master plan to mess up the country. It is all based on people who feel very uncomfortable with the direction that their society, their country, their world is taking and are desperately trying to cling on to what they've got. And that's a bad sign. But in some ways, you could argue, it's a realistic reflection of the decay of the West because the West is decaying. The only thing is that fear is never the right approach to solving such issues. Mm. The Republican perspective on the world is a very dark one. And this is being met with a very aggressive attitude towards outsiders, right? So towards outsiders from your own political tribes, towards the left, but also towards the rest of the world. And this reminds me very much of the, the episode we also did right before Christmas on the Roman Empire, right? And how we discussed that as soon as the Roman Empire was in its decay, it started becoming very, very aggressive towards insiders, right? So the opposition on the inside, but also towards outsiders. And this is where human psychology becomes very detrimental to itself, right? So if you notice that your society, whether it's the Roman Empire or the United States in the 21st century, is no longer as powerful, no longer as influential as 30 years ago, that in itself should not necessarily lead to a fearful approach. You could just say, okay, look, the 1990s, we were doing really, really well. Um, now, there are other countries that are maybe a little bit uh, more dynamic, that are growing faster. Okay, cool. What is now our way of approaching that? That would be the rational way of doing that, to say the world is changing. Maybe 30 years ago, things were a little bit easier, but we are still a pretty important country. The United States is still a huge economy with enormous intellectual wealth and enormous scientific and technological wealth. How can we actually approach things? Instead, though, what you see because of frail human psychology is that we hurt we are hurting, we are, we are in pain because we feel that we are no longer as good at, thing, at, at doing things as we used to. And then we, we try to hide in our little cocoon and we believe that everyone is out to get us and that there's some kind of global conspiracy around us to make us worse off. And that is an enormously powerful but also destructive bubble. Now, one thing that uh, is important to note here is that you said the Republican perspective is very dark and that is absolutely true in 2024. But in the 20th century and in the 19th century, Republican intellectualism, which was a very powerful movement, you mentioned it in the fact sheet, uh, Lincoln was a Republican, was actually very optimistic and believed in the United States and believed in the United States being a leader for the world and being being a platform, a vehicle to take humanity to a better place, right? So again, it shows how the internal workings and psychology of the Republican Party have changed during this period. This is reflected by um, a fact that a few years ago when I, when I learned about this blew my mind, that the Republican Party used to be the liberal and left-leaning party in the United States, and, and then only made the change towards the other side to become the more conservative movement, right? Which is in line with what you said, that these big intellectuals having these grandiose ideas, moving forward, right? Uh, having that positive, bright outlook on the world. And that has completely changed to nowadays, where 
it's yeah it's it's very dark right it's very dark and this is kind of connected to the right-wing uh, populism episode you're painting this very dark image and then saying that i am the redeemer i am this one figure that can save you from this and i will lead you towards a bright future actually no let me change that not towards a bright future let me lead you back towards the glory days right Right, and then you go back, to, uh, then, then you look at the MAGA discourse, right? Like make America great again of some kind of fictitious 1950s that never actually existed. The 1950s weren't that great. But uh, let's go back to some image in our mind of when everything was easier and better. And what really is happening is that not so much that the United States was a better place in the 1950s, but it was rising. It was on the rise. It was growing. It, was, it, it, it could look forward to the future. And now it feels as if certainly the Republican Party can no longer look forward to the future because it is just doing worse every year. The United States is doing worse. The Republican Party is doing worse. Things are going badly. Um, and that, is, that, that creates this real negativity and these, these dark changes that definitely exist within the Republican Party. By the way, that's also a nice illustration of why it, I'm always a little bit confused when people cling on to party membership, right? If you want to support a political party right now in 2024, that's fine. Go for it, whichever political party floats your boat. But it's typically the case that 10 years down the line, that Republican Party has deeply changed its personality, its characteristics. And so why would you then still call yourself a member of that same party if the very nature of that party has changed. Well, the only explanation of that is just pure tribalism. You call yourself a Republican or you call yourself a Democrat because that's somehow comforting to you, but there's no content connected to it. It's not as if the Republican Party 10 years ago reflects your values in the same way that it reflects your values now in 2024. What's the international relations context? Let's look at the impact of this uh, on the international stage, right? On the international relations perspective, because whether we like it or not, but the United States is still the most, maybe the second most powerful country in the world, depending on whom you ask. Um, therefore, whoever right will be in power in the United States, but right is, is not only limited to the presidency, but also to, to the Congress, um, they will have a lot of impact on the world. And this kind of the view of the Republican Party on foreign relations has changed, right? And you, in the lead up to this episode, you said, well, there's simply no more intellectualism. Um, and that is a very serious issue because the Republican Party does have a intellectual history. It does have a lot of thinkers. Um, and importantly, a lot of literature coming out of Republican circles that was in clear contrast, but still with a clear vision, but a clear contrast with democratic thinking and dem democratic intellectualism. So if you look at the 20th century or the 19th century, you see a real clash of ideas between the different political movements within the United States about how it should position itself on the world stage, what it wants to accomplish. There are also a lot of similarities um, because the United States has always believed in certain basic principles when it came to foreign policy, not, you know, not getting entangled with European um, mistakes from the past, um, leading the world economically and culturally much more so 
than uh, leading the world from an imperialistic perspective. Those were always major tenets of, of, if you like, intellectual thinking about Jewish foreign policy. And now that is gone. And the result is that there's no longer any serious conversation about what the United States should be doing on the world stage. And you watched uh, the primaries. I watched parts of it and I read, read the transcripts because I find it very difficult to watch them nowadays. Just it's, they make me upset. Um, what you notice is that there was actually no serious perspective on how the how the U.S. should position itself on the world stage. That it was just sound bites, and sound bites have always existed, but now it was just sound bites. There was nothing else anymore. Just silly statements that don't actually make any sense once you um, go through them, once you actually think about them for longer than five seconds, just to appeal to the emotional, sort of fearful state of mind of Republican voters. And that means that um, the most powerful or the second most powerful country in the world basically has no longer a vision of what they want to achieve in the world today. Well, well and this is even more intense with right the, the world of social media. And I mean, now these 60 second clips, reels, TikToks, shorts, whatever you want to call them, um, most statements that this was such a difference this year compared to, compared to the primaries a few years ago, um, where now you can clearly tell that candidates are saying things, having in mind that this needs to fit into 60 seconds and that it will exactly trigger what you just mentioned, that emotional response. And for me, the, this became pretty obvious when, uh, right when the, the journalists uh, or the moderators asked the candidates about, oh, so what do you do uh, with the situation uh, between Israel and Hamas? Um, and because we're talking about the Republican debates, obviously, uh, they didn't call the situation, but what are you doing between uh, the, for, for the war between Israel and the terrorists, right? So kind of setting this up in a very Republican sense. And the responses, for example, Nikki Haley, who has that international relations background for, for coming from the United Nations, kind of gave an, from an IR perspective, yeah, a perspective. She gave a perspective. But then you kind of move towards the more extreme candidates, let's say, right? Uh, so, for example, Ron DeSantis, who immediately said, yeah, I would do with them the same that I would do with the terrorists at our southern border. Right? So, so you immediately go, into, go into, these into these words, into the feelings, what do the voters actually care about? The voters in the United States no longer care about the terrorists in the Middle East. They care about the southern border in China. And the, the first reaction... I have to those situations is not even concerned about the aggressive nature of that language, right? Uh, it's not even about the aggressive nature of needing to defend against the outsider. My first reaction to those kinds of statements is how deep have we fallen in just having basic rational analysis at our disposal? Because it just doesn't make any sense. Forget about the emotional aspect. Forget about... Uh, the, the 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 very destructive aggression of of pretending that there is a world out there that you need to defeat that you need to kill that you need to destroy just take a step back and listen to those words and think this just doesn't make any sense you cannot jump from gaza to immigrants on the mexican border it just it is completely nonsensical and that is deeply, deeply worrying that, that we've fallen so far. Soundbites have always existed. 
um, superficial statements by politicians have always been there, but now it's the only thing that these candidates have left. They have zero intellectual weight behind them. And if we talk about the general themes uh, from the Republican primaries, from the debates on international relations, they were very much along the lines of what we usually complain about with regards to the United States in the Western bubble, right? So there was this big element of there are evil people in the world. There's China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, to be honest. Half of them said Russia was evil. The other half... The Republicans always struggle with that. They always find it difficult to find a way to describe Russia. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but that, And then you have the terrorists, of course. Um, it's very much anti-autocrats, pro-democracy. However... When we're looking at pro-democracy, um, one interesting element that has changed, I would say, over the last eight years is, yes, we're talking about a pro-democracy movement or pro-democracy thoughts, but that no longer translates into like positive thoughts and positive feelings towards its, uh, the United States allies, towards Europe, Japan, South Korea, um, Taiwan, right, where... You could clearly tell that all of these candidates were a lot tougher on their own allies than the Republicans used to be. And this is the party, right, that's very much, if you ask those old, old, old senators, those Republican senators, right, NATO, Europe, those are still the, the most important things uh, for, for, the, for the United States on the foreign policy level. That no longer seems to be the case. No, and it, it very much fits into what we said about the fearful nature of these kinds of um discourses narratives is that democracy as a foreign policy tool is no longer a positive project it's no longer about you know helping the globe um, on its way towards a utopian future it is basically for the republican party a way to divide the bad guys not from the good guys but from the less bad guys right so you if you're democratic, that doesn't mean that you're our friends because we really don't have any friends anymore in the world. We have to defend our own interests and we don't care about Europe or South Korea or Japan because they're just others who just are uh, milking our generosity. That's the narrative. But we won't attack you because at least you're still democracy. But if you're not a democracy, then that is a um, open door for us to use all our military might to get after you. So it becomes part of this us versus them narrative and, and us no longer includes foreign countries, allies, that have always been a fundamental part of U.S. foreign policy in modern days, right? The United States has always made this agreement with its Western allies, with Japan, with Australia, with, with South Korea, with Europe, that uh, let us lead you. We're going to be, quote, leaders of the free world, end quote, Um uh, and you follow our policies, and in exchange, we will help you militarily and maybe in trade negotiations and things like that. That has always been the deal. But now, the Republican Party has no, no interest in that whatsoever. They just want to know who they can fight, who they can label as an enemy, and the rest of the world is just neutral no-man's land. Uh, the last aspect of the international relations perspective is the international arena's uh, perspective on, on the U.S. primaries. And here, again, as always, very much thanks to our researchers uh, who kind of looked into the, the newspapers right outside of the West and kind of looked at, okay, how much coverage are the U.S. primaries actually receiving uh, from the world? And turns out very little. <laughs> um, so, so 
Chinese new pa- newspapers were very quiet on it, um, but also typical U.S. allies, Western allies, right, and Japan and South Korea were also relatively quiet on it. Um, Singapore, Indonesia, also very little coverage. There, there is this growing trend, I would say, that with limited power, um, that there becomes limited attention to the United States, right? There's less excitement about that once so bright beacon on the hill. Absolutely. It shows a clear shift uh, throughout the years. And, you know, maybe you're one of the last of the Mohicans still enjoying the entertainment. But in the past, um, a lot of countries in the world, a lot of millions of people would watch these Republican primaries or in the Democratic primaries and then obviously the US general elections because it was entertaining, but it was also somehow relevant. Right? And the fact that people no longer tune in and that the media across the globe has lost interest in whatever comes out is a sign of, one, that the United States has just become less relevant to the rest of the world. It's no longer this all-important uh, place where basically humanity's future is being decided. It's now The United States is just now one of the big players on, world, on the world stage, but there are many others. And... Just like we don't really care that much about politics within India or China, we don't care a lot about politics in the United States. And on the other hand, it also shows that people don't believe that the United States has anything politically to offer that we haven't figured out elsewhere, right? Whereas in the past, the United States seemed this, like this glorious uh, political framework that we all aspire to based on a brilliantly written constitution and things like that. And that feeling that the United States has a political message for the rest of the world can be a political template for others to copy seems to be completely gone. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? Let's discuss problems Um, because I mean believe it or not but if you have a two-party system well it's not a two-party system but a system dominated by two parties uh, in the United States um, and one of those parties is uh, going down a dark path I mean the other one (laughs) We will analyze maybe in a few weeks, um, but that's not good, right? That's uh, that's problematic in itself. And there are the obvious uh, problems, right? The ones we always list uh, within the Western bubble framework, right? There's an institutional decline. It's a bit of a problem that the primaries of this party, right, of the ones that are challenging the incumbent and are challenging the president, that there's no real process anymore because one person has won already and he doesn't even feel like he, ne- he needs to attend uh, the elections. You have the lack of visions, right? We discussed that, that they are basically saying the same, just in different levels of extremism. Uh, You have a lack of intellectualism um, and a lack of leadership, right? So these are these four very common um, kind of, yeah, yeah, problems (laughs) that we've discussed in the past. And if you then take that to sort of the international level, the Republican Party has a relatively long history, certainly since it sort of switched to becoming the conservative uh, party in the United States in the second half of 20th century, um, has been always skeptical of the UN and has been skeptical of global organizations. You know, why do we spend billions or hundreds of millions on these organizations um, if we could spend it at home. That has always been the message of the Republican Party. But the deep kind of seething anger that you now see against those global institutions 
shows that complete lack of vision and the lack of intellectualism and the lack of leadership, exactly the things that you just mentioned, because anyone with half a brain can understand that the United States set up these institutions to promote their own interests and that they actually can serve the United States well, even if they're no longer the most powerful nation on earth, they can still clearly um, use the UN, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, all those kinds of institutions to their advantage. But for that, you need to understand something about how the world works. And that understanding and the conversation surrounding such understanding have completely disappeared from the Republican Party. Absolutely. There is um, a video that has basically reappeared on everyone's uh everyone's landing page when it comes to their preferred uh, social media platform. Uh, and we would like to to play this video as a soundbite now because I think it is it is a great example of what the Republican Party once used to be or what American politics once used to be. And then we can kind of contrast that to, to nowadays. Um, so this is a video from, uh, the snippet is from CNN, um, but this is uh, an excerpt of a town hall debate uh, of the uh, basically U.S. presidential elections of the year 2008, uh, McCain versus Obama. And this is from October, right? So very close to the elections. Um, and this is McCain alone, surrounded by voters. I assume they're mostly Republican. Um, and uh, they are, you will now hear two basically concerned citizens asking questions and um, McCain responding to them and even interrupting them uh, very quickly. We're scared. Um, we're scared of an Obama presidency, and I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'm concerned about, um, you know, someone that, you know, cohorts with uh, domestic terrorists such as heirs. I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. Now, I, I just, I just, now, now look, I, I, I got to ask you a question. I do not. Uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, no, ma no, ma no, ma no, ma no, ma no, he's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Wow, um, right? It's I, I understand why this why this went viral uh, lately because I th I do see people kind of wishing wishing back for those times, but uh, the fact that right he interrupted both people very quickly and said no Obama is a decent man uh, please leave him alone I have very very strong disagreements with him but he is a decent man kind of is such a contrast to all the things that Trump said about Obama and about Hillary and Biden and. And it, 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 it should be pointed out that these town hall meetings, certainly also, by the way, the primaries, even though this is not from a primary, but town hall meetings and primaries are Republican politicians, in this case, McCain, addressing sort of the hardcore Republican Party, which is to the right or to the extreme of the general population. And of course, McCain has a clear interest in saying, hey, you know what, don't put me in this extreme corner with you because we still have to get along. We still have to run a country and it is important to have a certain level of decency among each other. Even if the 
hardcore radicals on the political spectrum might not accept that the core of the country the the the, the mainstream let's say 80 percent of the voting population still believes in basic decency and i'm going to signal to them that i understand that i'm just going to say Okay, I deeply disagree with Obama on a number of policies, but Obama is a decent man. He's a decent family man, and we should respect him. Now, um, it is very questionable whether in 2024 that would actually get you that many votes, because the country has split up into those extremes, and that, that main uh, middle ground of voters who still demand respect and that still demand basic decency among politicians is very quickly fading and disappearing. Uh, indeed, very quickly. And I mean, this video shows to me that the type of voters that vote for the extremes have always existed, but they were not necessarily given a platform, right? They were, I mean, well, they had their platform, they could voice their concerns, but then it was very... And then would be shut down. Exactly, shut down, put very put into perspective uh, for them. And I mean, I hope that they are more likely to listen uh, to, to McCain and they say, okay, well, if, if he, right, the person whom I trust the most in this election, if he tells me that Obama is not a bad guy, maybe he's not that bad. And, and that's something that is a little bit lost because if we now look at the primaries, um, and here we should add that the primaries are always a bit more extreme than, than the general election. Right, the primary simply the way they set up cater a bit more to the extremes, but we've heard some nasty, nasty things between the candidates, uh, the things that they've said about each other, being part of the same party. Right, um, for example, right, Trump calling uh, Nikki Haley a bird brain, and then there was this exchange between uh, Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley uh, where he kind of made some not so nice comments that I don't want to repeat about uh, about her daughter and she calling him "you are a scum." Right, that's that's a language that 15 years ago seemed at least not as likely, and and it it means that instead of elevating the debate, basically trying to take the lowest common denominator to a higher level intellectually, but also in in terms of basic decency. Um, for example, in the segment that we just listened to, the Republican voter just using the word Arab as a slur. As an, as an insult without knowing anything else. Obviously someone who has no idea what she's actually talking about. Instead of having the McCain's of this world or the Obama's of this world then elevating the debate and taking that voter with them, now politicians have descended towards the extreme and the indecent and the anti-intellectual um, voters that exist in every country, but certainly in the United States. So it's, it's, it's a sad sign of the times that that not just can they get away with being rude, but they're kind of being, there's a demand for them falling down into that rabbit hole of completely ignoring reasonable discourse, completely ignoring reasonable, decent behavior towards your other human fellow beings. Um, and instead just, uh, you know, pushing those emotional, aggressive, fearful buttons. And what now? Absolutely. And I think the biggest damage or the biggest problem with all of this is that the political process has been hurt. I mean, there has been no process in this uh, in these primaries. Um, Trump won. Uh, there was no diversity in candidates, right? I mean, 
well, there was a diversity in candidates, but there was no diversity in positions. Um, and this has basically now turned into the into the Donald Trump party. The reason why we haven't mentioned Donald Trump as much yet uh, is simply because next week's episode uh, will be specifically dedicated to Donald Trump as a symptom of Western decay, not the reason. Uh, absolutely. And that's an important distinction to make. Um, and it's not just that he won. He won with an overwhelming victory, over 50% of the votes without basically participating in those primaries. Um, and he won without ever having to explain himself because voters are no longer interested in that conversation. They're no longer interested in diversity of positions. They're no longer interested in any of that. What they're interested in is someone who pushes their emotional buttons. And that is um, a sign of very worrisome times. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the Republican Party in the United States. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Border. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? I chose a quote from James Madison, one of the U.S. founding fathers. And we can have lo loads of conversations about the founding fathers. And of course, that some of them, including Jefferson, for example, um, were slave owners. And there was a lot of things to criticize about them, of course. But one thing that you cannot criticize is their intellectualism because they were genuine intellectuals for their days and they thought very very carefully about what a positive optimistic country would look like and they very clearly understood the dangers of um, state building the dangers of foreign policy and that brought me to this quote from Madison who said so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts.